And the verse is Mark 11, 27, and on page 848. The authority of Jesus challenged. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus answered to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. As Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The parable of the tenants. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they kill and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Wonderful to be with you. Excited to look at God's word with you, but first let's pray. Let's ask for help. Heavenly Father, we are here for, for more than just to hear someone give a speech. Uh, we, want, we want you to speak to us in a way we can't ignore and we believe that's what you want, Lord, um, in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would keep your promise, that your word would never go out in vain, and that you would help us to hear what you are saying to us from this passage. Please help me, Lord, to teach it faithfully, clearly, and please help all of us, myself included, Lord, to have open ears and soft hearts to not only hear, but to believe, to be changed. For your glory, Lord, our joy in you as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? Those are the big questions of life, aren't they? Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? There's a lot of things we get wrong those are questions we need to get right. But there's another question that's just as important as those, and that 
speaks to those, and that's this question, how do you know? Who am I? Well, how do, how do you know? Why am I here? How do you know? How should I live? How do you know? That's the question of authority. It's a question of authority. Try to get at a definition for this kind of authority. Authority is the decisive voice on something, right? Based on knowledge or strength or influence. The authority is the decisive voice. And I think little is more important than recognizing the authority that's lurking in any conversation or idea. And especially when it comes to the biggest questions of life, nothing is more important than listening to the true authority. So in our cultural moment, people say, maybe you can feel it, many of the traditional authorities of society are seen as compromised. Uh, In our cultural moment, we don't really trust religion We don't trust doctors like we used to. We don't trust politicians for sure. Even newspapers. We don't trust any of these institutional authorities like we did in generations past. So thinking of our cultural moment, who do you think is seen now as the authority? Supposedly there's a new authority in town. Who do you think it is? Self. Self. Have you noticed the message? The millions of messages you're continually receiving all the time. Self is to be the ultimate authority. There's a guy named Christopher Walken who wrote what I think is a really insightful book called Biblical Critical Theory, and he has a whole section on identity and authority. And he did some uh, digging around, just finding how the phrase, go your own way, has been used in different kind of levels, layers of pop culture. So he writes how in recent years that phrase, go your own way, has appeared on around 100 music albums, including titles by Fleetwood Fleetwood Mac and the Cranberries. In the last half century, go your own way has been used by car companies like Isuzu, Ford, Mazda, Suzuki, and Toyota. Can't you hear the message in your music? Maybe two of you are Bon Jovi fans. Anyone? Leftovers from the 80s? It's my life. I did it my way. Or uh, if 80s rocker ballads aren't your thing, we could do Elsa from Frozen. (laughs) It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. Listen, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. It was the ballad of every young Disney princess for like 10 years. Now, I I apologize for getting that song in your head. Um, (laughs) It's just nearly unforgivable. But all this raises the question, right? Think of this phrase, go your own way. It's really the same thing as be your own authority. Here's some questions it raises. Am I going my own way because I'm going my own way? Or am I going my own way because I'm continually told to go my own way by the society I live in? Why does going my own way so desperately need the affirmation of everyone else? Why does going my own way need likes on Instagram if I'm going my own way? What on earth does owning a Toyota have to do with going your own way? 
Now, full disclosure, I have a 2006 Toyota minivan. So I guess that means I'm going my own way, right? <laughs> I'm relevant. Just one more illustration. Watkins, in his book, mentions this clothing retailer called the General Pants Company. So I'm reading this book, and their brand positioning is this. I love this. Led by none. Isn't that awesome? Led by none. I mean, how rad are you? You have no leaders. You are your own authority. So, I mean, I couldn't help it. I looked it up, and I watched commercial after commercial. You get these super independent, alternative young adults, each making his own way on gender, sexuality, and denim. All supposedly led by none, except for maybe the company selling them all their pants that all of them are wearing. Do you see? This message, you can be led by none. And I guess the way to show that you have no leader is to come to the General Pants Company and get a pair of Levi's for $106. Friends, what if we're being sold the idea on self-made authority? And defining our own reality turns us into a commodity. That was Watkins' point, and it's convincing to me. Robert Bella says this, when modern people think we are most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. I'm going to read that one again. When modern people think we are most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. It is a powerful cultural fiction. That we not only can but must make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private lives. Now, I could go on and on on this. From high culture to pop culture, we're told all the time that the only authority you can truly trust is you. I'm not sure it works, I'm not sure it's even honest. But who am I? What am I here for? Where do I find meaning in life? Next question. What is your authority? How do you know? Now, that's a long sermon introduction. But we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning our text is all about the issue of ultimate authority. That's what it's about. Authority on the big questions of life. Last week, we saw how Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the Christ. What does Christ mean? God's promised king, that kind of authority. And he entered into the temple. And after asserting his authority over nature and over the temple itself, here he is before us, claiming himself as king. In fact, we watch as Jesus challenged and condemned the corrupt authority of the religious leaders who were exercising their authority to use people who came to worship for money. And when Jesus challenged their authority with his own, their response was, well, hatred. They want him dead. But they're handcuffed by the crowds who are hanging on Jesus' every word, 
And so our text this morning describes their first effort at trying to undo Jesus' authority. This is their first effort on trying to undo Jesus' authority. So I want you to see what we have here. It's a contest of authority. Who says? How do we know? Who can we trust? And it's happening at the temple, which that's the place where you learn the answer to the biggest questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Who is God? What does he say? Who's the authority? And so as we listen to this text, we're asking that same question, and maybe the temple of our modern culture is self. And so there's still a contest of authority. Who is it in your life? How do you know? I have three points this morning. Exposure, warning, cornerstone. The exposure, the warning, the cornerstone. So in verse 27, the religious leaders are nearly panicking at Jesus' actions in the temple. You can see why. They have a great system going on. They have influence, they have position, they have power, and they have profit. And Jesus came in and started overturning tables. And the crowd is hanging on his every word. So all of their authority now is in question. It's at risk. It's vulnerable. So they're panicking. They come now together to challenge Jesus' authority in order to preserve their own. It's a contest of authority. Here's what they say, Mark 27. Oh, sorry, Mark 11, 27. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? There it is. This is the question of authority. He comes into the temple. He overturns it. He basically said, this is mine. This is my father's house. And so the question is, who are you from Nazareth, a Galilean teacher? Who are you to exert this kind of authority? How do we know? But what do you think? Is this a genuine question? Are they like true seekers? Jesus, we're intrigued. Please, no, of course not. This is not an effort to truly learn something. This is an effort to disrepute, disrepute Jesus' authority with the crowd so that they can kill him. That's what they want to do. So Jesus responds with a question. Jesus, in verse 9, says to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So what is he doing? It's really intriguing. Um, he calls them to answer a question. He calls them to have an answer for a question they should obviously have as religious leaders of Israel. This should be obvious. Okay, so John the Baptist was a towering figure. Incredibly influential, immensely popular, deeply respected. You cannot honestly be a religious authority and not have a take on John the Baptist. That, that's, like, that's like a pastor not having a take on whether the Bible is true. If you're like, Matt, what do you think? Is the Bible true? And I was like, well, if I say this, they might think that. If I say that, they might think this. I don't know. Jesus says, tell me what you think of John's authority from God or not. Now, I think they realized right away their strategy did not work. Okay? They will learn by the end of the week it's not a good idea to engage in debates with Jesus. You tend to lose. 
So, so here they are, the religious leaders. You can imagine them coming them in their confidence and their pride. We're going we're gonna to show, we're going to expose that Jesus' authority is a fraud. And here's the question, how dare you? Who are you? And Jesus says, well, all right, I'll tell you. You tell me what you think about John the Baptist. And then they're like, and they all have to go group up in the corner. It's not a good show, right? They all have to go group up in the corner. And look at what they say, verse 31. They discuss it with one another. Well, if we save John the Baptist from heaven, he'll say, then why did you not believe him? Huh? If we say from man, well, we're afraid of the people. They all held that John really was a prophet. So they came and answered our official statement as the religious authorities of Israel is, we don't know. What is happening? Their authority as religious leaders is being exposed as a fraud. They have no true authority. They're exposed. You you see their question. It's not a genuine question. It's all about playing games and manipulating things in order to preserve their own selfish agenda. They had stewardship over God's people, God's place. And when God wants to come check out his place, they want to keep it all for themselves. They want to be the ultimate authority and they are being exposed and Jesus won't play their game. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Who is the authority in this conversation? Did you see? Who is the authority in this conversation? They come up trying to expose his lack of authority. He says, he, first of all, he has the authority to set the agenda. You tell me and I'll tell you. And then when they, won't, that when they won't answer genuinely and honestly, he says, I'm not telling you. Who's in charge here? Jesus. And they have been exposed. They demanded an answer from him to test him, only for everyone to see that they are the ones who have no answer and have failed the test. But here's the challenging lesson for us. We live in a world, right? Competing authorities yelling at us all the time, even telling us, selling us. You can be your own authority. When we challenge the authority of Jesus, the authority we cling to instead of his will one day be exposed. It will be seen to be fraudulent, empty, And we understand that only Jesus' claim to authority is threatening. He's, he's still threatening today because of that claim to authority. We remember John 14, 6. What did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. What a massive statement asserting just ultimate, total, absolute authority. And it, it comes at us, doesn't it? What do you think of Jesus' claim over all things, including you? Where, where are you tempted to chafe at Jesus' authority in your life? Because in the end, right, this is inevitable, this is going to occur, in the end, you will either love Jesus' authority or you will hate it. That makes sense, right? There isn't a middle ground like that. 
there's not a there's not a third way. You love his authority, or you'll totally reject it. But you have to ask, right? When you don't like the authority of Jesus, and I, I want you to ponder yourself: wh- where is that in you, perhaps? When you don't like the authority of Jesus, you need to ask next, what authority are you putting in his place? What are you listening to instead of him? Because there's always an authority. There's never not an authority. And it's really important that we recognize the authority. So when you chafe at Jesus' authority, what is the substitute authority you're using? And can it stand in his presence? Will it hold? Is it trustworthy as he is? And this moment shows us all authority that stands in the face of Jesus' authority will be exposed. Second point, the warning. So Jesus begins this parable. He began verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. Who's the them? I think it's the religious leaders who came to, uh, to debate him, to undo him. He begins to speak to them in parables. It starts plain enough, regular enough for the time. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. First of all, commentators say this is absolutely normal for the time. Much of Galilee was uh, tenant farming. So you'd have somebody with a little more money. They own the land, and then there's a participation, right? Workers can use, use the land, which they could never afford on their own, do the work, and then you, you share in some way the harvest. And what we have here in this story, you have a generous landowner. He does everything necessary to set this up. It's all taken care of. It's all buttoned up. It's perfect. And he leases it to tenants. Like I said, it's normal. They can, they can work the land and share some of the produce for their work. And then totally expected when it's, when it's time, when it's in season, this is, this is what happens, right? The, the owner sends a, a servant and he gets some of the produce from his, from his field, his property. We understand that. But it begins to take a shocking turn. You just imagine Jesus in the, I think he's in the court of the Gentiles here, and there's masses of people just hanging on his words, if you can imagine this. I mean, yesterday or, or today, whenever he's telling this, he turned over the tables, right? He's, he's all the rage, and everybody's just listening to him teach. And the, the story takes a, a surprising turn. They, they took the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Whoa! It, the, the language here is strong. They thrashed him. And it's not like they just gave him a handful of the, the fruit. Nothing. We're keeping it. Oh, what would you do if, the, if you're the landowner? Is you going to take some action here, get some legal recourse, bring some penalties? Not this landowner. What's he do? Verse 4, send to them another servant. We'll try again. Maybe they're having a bad day. I don't know. We'll try again. We'll send him another servant. What'd they do with this guy? Verse 4, they beat his head in. They, they beat his head in, and then they did something to seriously insult and shame him. So this is just, this is out of control. This is wicked. So what are you going to do now if you're the landowner? Well, I've had enough, right? I sent one, I sent two, let's take some recourse. Uh, not yet. Verse 5, he sent another, and him they killed. 
And at this point, you know, in the context of the story, you're a little concerned about being a servant of this landowner because you're sending me to these. I don't know. I don't know if I want to go. Right. You're sending me to these people. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And if you're just listening into the story for the first time, you're just, what? What? You're appalled in two ways. One with the total wickedness of the tenants working the land. And the other with the bizarre patience and grace of the landowner. Then he does the unthinkable. Verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. I mean, you're listening, right? You're thinking, no, don't send him. Don't send him. How many of you are sending your son in this context? Finally, he sent sent him to him saying, they will respect my son. This is the one who is going to inherit. This is his vineyard. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Again, this almost ridiculous generosity of this landowner and this brutal, insane attempts of the tenants to establish their own false authority over someone else's possession. And they kill the son and they dump his body in the ditch. And then Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now in Matthew, Matthew's account of the same story, you actually get the response of the crowd. And I think the idea is they were so tracking with Jesus' story that when he asked the question, they're so into it, right? They've so ingested his story that they shout out the answer, Matthew 21, 41. They, the crowd, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Sounds right to me, right? Of course, that'd be some justice. That'd be right. The people are tracking, and Jesus agrees in Mark. Yeah, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So the people have ingested this story, and they're siding rightly with the owner of the vineyard. But then in about this moment, the parable pops for them. Wait a second. In Luke 2016, I love this. Jesus had just said, yes, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And he was repeating the answer the people had given him. And when they heard this, what did they say? Surely not. Do you see what happened? They just got it. It just popped for them what he's talking about in this parable. Surely not. Back to Mark, Mark 12, 12. For they perceived the religious leaders. He had told the parable against them against them this temple is my father's vineyard and you are the wicked tenants yeah let's let's interpret the parable i think you're probably already getting it just like they did who's the vineyard well it's god's people especially god's temple Because the temple was for the people. That's where the people meet with God. That's where the gap is bridged. That's where fellowship with God occurs. And Jesus uses language almost directly out of Isaiah 5, where the prophet Isaiah speaks of Israel as God's vineyard. 
So the owner of the land is God. He's good and generous, provides everything. And who are the tenants? They're the religious leaders of Israel. They're in God's vineyard. They're supposed to cultivate it and bring good fruit, wisdom, righteousness, mercy, truth. And who are these poor servants? These are the prophets. They're sent by God to call the people back to faithfulness to God. And throughout the entirety of the history of Israel, they were killed and mistreated. Killed and mistreated. And God has been almost scandalously patient. And now having all his prophets killed and mistreated, who does he send? His son. Well, we ask the question, who is the son? I hope that's obvious to you at this point. But remember, remember back when the religious leaders asked about Jesus' authority? And he said, well, I want to answer you. And, and sometimes we think, well, why didn't he just answer them? You guys, he did answer them. He did. Think about John's message and his baptism. Looking back at Mark 1, what did John say? Mark 1, 7. Remember, Jesus had said, I'll tell you my authority if you answer this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Well, let's remember what John said, Mark 1, 7. And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see what John is saying? Someone with immense ultimate authority is coming. That was John's message. And then think of John's baptism, Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. Read this with me. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What kind of authority does Jesus have? He's the son of God. He's the son of God. So what kind of authority does Jesus have over the temple? All authority. Over the biggest questions of life, all authority. Jesus is the eternal son of God who came in the flesh to the temple. Remember last week, looking for fruit. And instead of the tenants having fruit for him, what are they going to do with him? They're going to kill him and throw him in a ditch. They're going to deliver him to the Romans where he will drag a cross and be killed outside the city, outside the vineyard. Jesus knows, doesn't he? He has all authority. And back to verse 9. What was the conclusion of this parable? The landowner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I don't want to soften that in any way. What does destroy the tenants mean? It means destroy the tenants. This is a promise. This is a prophecy. 70 AD, Rome would come. 
and rip this wonder of the ancient world down to where there's not one stone left on another. And the temple and the city and all of the religious leadership of Israel will be completely obliterated. Obliterated. Some scholars say even the genealogies, like what do you need to be a priest in the temple? Well, you have to be uh, in the tribe of Levi, right? Say we wanted to start that up again. Who can be the priest in the temple? Well, you'd have to prove you're in the tribe of Levi. And guess what? You can't do it. It's, it's obliterated. It's over. It's been replaced. The vineyard will be given to others. Can you see why the people there said, oh, surely not? Surely not. Jesus says, surely. The vineyard will be given to others. What does that mean? How does that work? Well, it's given to those who trust the authority of the Son of God. It's given to the apostles. Jesus replaces and fulfills the temple in himself, doesn't he? He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the word. He's the truth. And by extension, his people who submit to his authority and repent and trust in him, we are his temple, are we not? We are. But here's the warning, right? Judgment is coming for all who reject the ultimate authority of the Son of God. And you could say that in a way, God has given each one of us a vineyard as well. You're not a religious leader in Israel in the first century. He's given you a, a vineyard, if you will, right? Your life, your context, your relationships, it's from him. He gives you life and breath, gives you all that you have, all your opportunities. He's given you a vineyard. He's generous, and it's all his. And he wants them to return on what's his. Do you live for him? Are you thankful to him? Are you submitted to him? Do you love him? And he has sent us his word. He sent us his word, the prophets and the apostles. We have it. He sent it to us. What do we do with it so often? I mean, I've, I, I assume you've never killed a prophet. I don't think I've ever met one, so I couldn't kill one anyway. But... Maybe you've never killed a messenger, but have you ever despised God's message to you in the word? Not only has he sent us his word, he sent us his son. And what is our response? Like I said, you'll either love or you will hate the authority of Jesus. And here is a strong warning, right? Jesus comes offering the gospel, offering himself, saying repent and believe Know my love, I'll save you, I'll thrill you, I'll be yours forever. But to rebel against that authority. The scripture teaches your sins will be on your head. Judgment will come. False authority gets exposed and Jesus is warning us that rebellion against his authority will receive judgment. Exposure, warning, now the foundation. Jesus finishes this moment by quoting from Psalm 118. Have you not read this scripture, verse 10? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And remember, remember what we looked at last week, as Jesus entered the city, remember a humble king on the colt of a donkey, the people sang. Do you remember what they were singing from? Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Now he's quoting from that same psalm. And there's a little parable in this psalm. The, the, temp, the, the temple builders, there was a certain stone, and whoever was in charge of putting the temple together, they were like, uh, this, that stone's no good. Cast it aside. We use a different one. But somehow, right, in this little parable, apart from the builders, the stone that was rejected, it's no good. What has it become? The cornerstone. Now, what function does the cornerstone play? Well, it has the idea of holding all things together. It holds it all together. It's the anchor. It's the focal point. How did that happen in Psalm 118? Well, verse 11 says, it was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Somehow, God did something so shocking, so marvelous to take a stone that was rejected and make it foundational. And here Jesus is quoting this psalm that others had sang to and about him to everyone, saying, have you not read? Did you not know? Have you not heard? Do you remember the cornerstone? Friends, who's the cornerstone? It's Jesus. What did it mean that the builders rejected him? Well, we see it right here. They hate his authority. He's going to be betrayed. There's going to be a sham trial. It's going to be delivered over to Rome. He's going to be crucified. The builders rejected him. We don't want him. We don't want his authority. Well, it's going to happen. Something marvelous in our eyes. On the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven and to sit at the right hand of the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the cornerstone. He holds it all together. And he has such authority that he even has authority over his own death. We just remember the death of Jesus it's not like some people frame it. It's not a, it's not a tragic accident due, due to Jesus getting in over his head. It was tragic. It's not an accident. It was his mission all along. You remember Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The father sent the son to the vineyard knowing good and well that the son would die. Actually, he sent the son to the vineyard so the son could die because that is how rebels like me and you are saved. That's how we're ransomed. I think of my own rebellion against Jesus' authority. Way too many times, way too many ways, I'm like those tenants. Get, get off me. Get your word off me. I want to do what I want to do. Can anyone relate? And the idea that God would keep sending his word to me and that he would even send his son for me and then that my heart would be, man, just, just die already. I want to be my own authority. And even to hear the voice say, I did die. 
so I could save you from your foolishness and rebellion of wanting to be your own authority. That's what Jesus did for us. He took our place for our sin. He took upon himself the wrath of God we deserve for our rebellion, our insistence on our own authority, and he rose from the dead just as he said, and he's the way to have these foolish, stubborn hearts healed. And his authority, friends, is our foundation. It's threatening at first, isn't it? But in the end, it's a safety. It's our foundation. People say, don't talk about Jesus' authority. Talk about his love. Talk about his mercy. His love doesn't mean anything without his authority. His mercy isn't any good without his authority. Your hope in him for your future is no good unless he's king of kings. And Lord of lords, his authority is our foundation. I, I collect little articles here and there sometime. Two of them stood out to me this week. A recent Gallup poll said U.S. depression rates have reached new highs. More people are depressed than ever. A 2018 study, Americans are lonelier than ever. We're lonely and depressed more than ever. Now, I am not claiming any direct correlation, but I wonder if being sold a message of you and yourself are the ultimate authority has something to do with those other things. I'm rather confident that it does. Number one, it's a myth. Number two, it's foolish. Number three, it's a message of despair. Of despair. You can never be that wise, that good, that faithful for yourself. And then to think of Jesus. Because friends, the big question is not just who am I? That's a question that almost... Uh, forces us to answer ourselves. The real question is, whose am I? Whose am I? Am I just a commodity of my cultural moment, or do I belong to someone who knows me and loves me? Think Think of even Jesus' sense of identity. What did he call himself? Did he, did he come on the scene saying, I'm the new God? You know what he called himself? Son. And the very definition of that word includes relationship. You can't know authority or define it all by yourself. That's a myth. It's insane. I mean, think about even just language. You had to be taught language. Language is what we use to define reality. You had to be taught language, and you have to agree on language with others. We know ourselves in relationship, defined by others. Oh, and to to see Jesus, he knows who he is. He's the son, beloved of the father. And then for us to ask, for Christians to ask, not just who am I, whose am I? And what a thrill to say, I belong to Jesus. He's claimed me for himself. He's known me. He's loved me. He's come for me. He wants me with him. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. He reigns for me. He sees me. I'm his. That's not a burden. That is freedom. 
Think of how Paul speaks in Galatians 2.20. Whose am I? I have been crucified with Christ. That old mess of self-authority that's dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Look at these next three words. Who, what? Loved me and gave himself for me. He sees his very self in light of the love of Jesus. And where does he look for the love of Jesus? It's past tense. Why? What's he looking at? He's looking at the cross. He loved me. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Whose are you? Why are you here? How should you live? You belong to Jesus. You're here for his glory. You live with and for him. And not just individualistically, but the text we read in our call to worship this morning. In 1 Peter 2, in the beginning of that chapter, Peter quotes, can you guess, Psalm 118. And he talks about the cornerstone. And then he talks about the identity of those who trust in the cornerstone. Church, look who you are. Let me tell you. You are a chosen race. You're a new kind of people. And God himself chose you. You are a royal priesthood. You have a high station in the greatest kingdom of all. And you actually play a a mediative role for others to know God. You serve him and your life is pleasing and acceptable. You are a holy nation. You are set apart. You are the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes to have a people for himself. You are a people for God's own possession. He, he wants to have you. That you may, what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mm. It's all always about authority. And the ultimate authority is always Jesus. The religious leaders tried to resist him, expose him, but they themselves were exposed and were warned that they would be judged. Our passage finishes verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus' authority is laying its claim on each one of us right now. Don't be the one who leaves him and goes away so that you can preserve a false, ridiculous, mythological self-authority. Now find, find yourself. Find true freedom in repenting and trusting in him. There we find ourselves together in him. Let's pray. Jesus, as always, you are amazing.
There's nobody like, like you. Nobody speaks like you, has lived like you, loves like you. There's nobody who would do what you did for us. There's no authority like you. We just gaze upon you and see both strength and humility, absolute utter authority, and then total kindness and condescension that you would come so humbly for us. We who have rebelled against you time and time again. Lord, help us to believe in you, to trust you, to love you. If anyone walked in here, Lord, today, not a Christian, I pray, you'd call him to yourself even this very moment. For those of us who are yours, Lord, let us grow in our love for and trust in your authority, knowing who we are in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.